Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Um, Heavenly Father, as we looked at uh, the Bible last week, we saw how your word came to the Thessalonians with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And how indeed they viewed uh, your word as it is, the word of God and not just the words of men. And we pray, please, we would be like them today as we come to this moment, seeing and hearing your word, believing that it is your word and not just another piece of literature. And we pray that in your kindness, it would indeed come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and in deep conviction that we may be changed to your praise and glory. Amen. Well, do keep uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 open and uh, you might also find it helpful to dig out uh, in one of the blue um, piece of paper tucked into your bundle um, a a handout so you know where we're going in the next few moments. After I became a Christian, a, a close relative told me that they were concerned that I was taking it all too seriously. My relative was a churchgoer, so it wasn't as if they didn't believe anything, but um, they weren't a Christian. And they told me uh, to be less intense when it came to Christianity. Uh, Some months later, when I was still as keen as ever, uh, my relative, this relative, met one of the people who was leading the small group that I was attending. And uh, my relative said to me, having met this person, you know, I'm not sure about the guy who's leading your Bible study group. He doesn't seem genuine to me. I wouldn't trust him if I were you. Now, I don't think I realised what was going on at the time with that comment, but now I can see it was an attempt to undermine not so much the leader of the small group that I was going to, but to undermine my faith in Jesus Christ. See, by questioning my small group leader's character, my relative thought it would make me question what he was teaching me and therefore just make me back off a bit and not be so intense. And it seems that is the sort of thing that was going on in first century Thessalonica. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 17 to get the back story to this letter. Uh, Do you remember Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica for three consecutive weeks? Paul went to the synagogue in Thessalonica and um, he opened the Bible, the scriptures uh, in the synagogue to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ and to explain why Jesus had to die and rise again. We saw all of that in Acts chapter 17. And you'll remember that there was a marvellous response. Jews and Greeks, men and women, and people from across the social spectrum became Christians. And while that was brilliant for Paul and Silas, and of course for all those who became Christians, it really ticked off the leaders of the synagogue, and it's obvious why. Suddenly people were no longer following Judaism, but they were following Christianity and the Apostle Paul. And so you'll remember from Acts chapter 17 that a great spat began. The Jews chased Paul out of Thessalonica and their hatred of Paul was so intense that uh, when they heard that Paul was now preaching in the synagogue in Berea, which was 45 miles away, a nine-hour hike, when they heard this, uh, these people who were against Paul went all the way down to Berea and caused trouble for him there so that Paul had to scarper and leave Berea in fear of his life. And so now, do you see, with Paul out of town, uh, well out of the way, uh, you can imagine that next on the hit list for those who opposed the gospel were the Christians in Thessalonica who'd just become Christians. 
And we know from last week that the new Christians in Thessalonica did suffer for being Christians. Look again at chapter 1, verse 6. They faced severe suffering. Now, the book doesn't tell us exactly what that meant, but it's a strong word, severe suffering. And we can imagine the opponents of Christ trying every way possible to try and get people to stop following Jesus. And one of the ways was to discredit the Apostle Paul, the very one who'd taken the message of Jesus to them in the first place. For in undermining Paul, they would undermine the gospel message that he delivered. You can't trust him, don't trust what he said, don't follow Jesus. Now in chapter two, we can work out the sort of things they were saying about the Apostle Paul. Look at verses three to six with me. Paul was accused of error, of having wrong motives, of trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. So Paul writes, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. And as we read on, it seems Paul's opponent said, Paul's just out for himself. And so Paul writes, verse four, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our heart. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. You see, in those verses, Paul is being accused of being a man pleaser. Paul's message has no substance. He just uh, says things that you want to hear so that you will like him. Verse five, he's full of flattery. And by the way, we do know the difference between encouragement and flattery, I hope. Encouragement is said uh, for the benefit of the person you say it to. So you say true things. I might say uh, to Matt, the music's great this morning, because it is. Just saying a true thing. Flattery is all about saying things that you're saying that might be true or might not actually, but you're saying them so that you get something over on people. They like you. Flattery is for my benefit. Encouragement is for yours. And he's been accused of flattery. He says, no, I didn't do that. I didn't just butter you up to make you feel good about yourself so that you'll like me and follow me. He's out to get a following is what people were saying. And he's particularly wanting to line his own pocket. Verse five, he's greedy. He's after your money. In short, Paul can't be trusted. He's a manipulative salesman, a dodgy dealer, out for himself, wanting to feather his own nest. In two big ways, he's wanting to do that, wanting to get a crowd to follow him and then trying to take money from his followers. And there were plenty of people like that around at the time. People who would walk into town, peddle their latest philosophy, smooth talk their way into people's lives, simply to get them to part with their hard-earned cash, only to leave town and never to be seen again. Now, Paul's reputation was being solid, along with all the other con artists around at the time. And just imagine hearing this as a new Christian, because it is horrible to be conned. It's a long story, I won't bore you with all the details, but this time last year we hired a company to do some work for us, Caroline and I did. Um, They did an appalling job, but we paid up front. Uh, We asked them to redo the work. Uh, They were already late behind the time that we should have had it done anyway, but they were having none of it. And in the end, we were out of £100 out of pocket. We felt frustrated and frankly, we felt quite stupid that we'd even taken them on and paid up front. It's horrible when you've been conned. And it's bad enough when it's a relatively small thing, 100 pounds, but it's disastrous when you've changed your whole direction in life to be told it's all a con. 
That's what the opponents of the gospel were trying to do here. Trying to leave the Thessalonian Christians with serious doubts about Paul, knowing that if they put doubts in the mind of the, about the messenger, it would result in doubts in the mind about the message. And so they might not carry on following Jesus. It happened back then. It was a tactic tried on me over 30 years ago when I became a Christian. And I know people say it today. They say it about Fullwood Church. People question Christian, uh, People become Christians and our inter- in- integrity is questioned. Don't trust Fullwood Church. They're a bit extreme. They're fundamentalists. So what we have here in chapter 2 is Paul's defense of his ministry. Not because he's a defensive kind of guy but so that the Thessalonians won't give up following Jesus. And the first point on the handout, a messenger with a message of substance. Look how Paul begins this section in verse one. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Now that word failure has the idea of it being empty of content. The opponents were probably suggesting that Paul's message had no substance don't follow it it's it's not really it has nothing about it Paul replies you know brothers that our visit to you was not a failure and those first two words you know are very important here Paul repeats them again and again in this chapter I've uh, put the uh, the the times that he does that on the handout right through this section Paul's Paul appeals to what the Thessalonians actually knew firsthand of his ministry And the first thing he says, verse 1, is you know our visit was not a failure. You know it had substance because, verse 2, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our gospel, we dared to tell you uh, his gospel in spite of strong opposition. This is the big point, the headline response, if you will. This is the big thing to remember from today. Paul is saying, just think about it logically. People are telling you that what I have to say has nothing in it, that there's no substance to it. People are telling you I'm a charlatan, not to be trusted because I'm out for myself. But just think about it for a minute. I suffered for this. Verse 2, Silas and I suffered in Philippi. And boy, did they suffer in Philippi. You can read when you get home Acts chapter 16, and you'll discover that in Philippi, Paul and Silas were falsely accused of causing trouble by breaking the law. They were taken before the magistrates in the town who ordered them to be beaten. They were severely flogged and then thrown into prison, all for the sake of the gospel. And yet, verse 2, having suffered so significantly in Philippi, Paul and Silas went from Philippi to Thessalonica, walked in Thessalonica, and verse 2, dared to tell them the gospel too. See what Paul is saying? Paul knew that preaching the gospel would bring him trouble and cause him pain, physical pain. So why would he be prepared to suffer for it if his message was empty, if it had no substance? And why would he be prepared to suffer if he was just in it for himself? See, as we've seen already in verse four, the opposition accused Paul and Silas of just being men-pleasers. But the, 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 the fact could not be further from the truth. Look at the facts, says Paul. I didn't please men. They hated us so much. They beat us and threw us in prison in Philippi and they rounded up an angry mob and tried to lynch us in Thessalonica. You see, you don't go into gospel ministry if you want to be popular because faithfully proclaiming the gospel doesn't make you popular. Indeed, it's what Jesus said. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That comes in John 15. 
He said this as well. He said, beware when all men speak well of you in Luke chapter 6. The gospel is not popular. So if everyone only has good things to say about you, you're probably not being faithful to the gospel. That was Paul and Silas's experience. And so their headline here is this. We've been accused of only being for, out for ourselves. Some think we're, we're just in, it, in the popularity stakes. Some say we're trying to line our own pockets. But think about it. It doesn't square with what you know. You know that everywhere we go, we suffer. We suffer because the message of the gospel has substance. We suffer because it's the most important message in the world. We suffer because it's a message that everybody on the planet needs to hear. The message of a God who loves you. So much that he sent his son to die for you. So that you can be forgiven and have eternal life. Life beyond the grave forever. Our message has substance all right. And it's so important we're prepared to suffer for it. A messenger with a message of substance. Secondly, uh, and over the page on the handout, a messenger... Not proclaiming the message for profit. This is verses six to nine. See, we've already seen one of the two big accusations leveled against Paul and Silas was that of greed. We saw that in verse five. They were accused of trying to profit from gospel ministry, of trying to feather their own nests, of being the first century equivalent of US tele-evangelists. And Paul addresses that accusation in verses six to nine. And once again, Paul can appeal to what the Thessalonians knew. Look at verse 9. Surely you remember. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Just think about it, he says. So halfway through verse 6, Paul writes, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. Now, that burden word is he's talking about money here, of being a financial burden on you. And his point is simple. It would have been perfectly reasonable for us, for me and Silas, to expect you Thessalonians to give us board and lodgings during our stay. Indeed, it would have been perfectly legitimate for us to even ask you to pay us. The Bible itself teaches that the gospel workers should be paid for their work. So it would have been quite legitimate if Paul had expected to be paid. But look at verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers... Our toil and hardship, we worked night and day in order not to be a financial burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Paul and Silas worked their socks off while they were in in Thessalonica. Paul was a trained tent maker, we're told in Acts chapter 18. So my guess is that while he was in Thessalonica, he made and repaired tents while at the same time preached the gospel so that he wouldn't have to take money from the Thessalonians in order to live. I'd be able to make a living tent making and about gospel proclamation. Uh, Doing both saw him working day and night. He says, no, I'm not about feathering my own nest. He took no money from them, but he worked almost every hour that God sent in order to make a living and preach the gospel. You see, verse 6 and verse 9 are all about money. Verse 9 is the proof that he wasn't out for their money. And so verses 6 and 9 kind of form a bracket around verses 7 and 8. And we'll see that they also are primarily about money. So on this issue of not being on the make, Paul says, we weren't a financial burden to you, but, verse 7, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. The point is simple. Mums don't charge for their services. 
I love the story of the lad saving up for a new computer game. He'd uh, saved up his pocket money but didn't have quite enough money. So he wrote a note and as he went off to school, he left it on the kitchen bench addressed to his mum. His mum found the note that day and opened it and it read this, Dear Mum, for washing up every day this week, £2.50. For hoovering and cleaning my room on Thursday, £1.50. For putting the rubbish in the black bin, £1. Love, love Sam. Well, when he got home, he found the note in his bedroom and his mum had written on the bottom of the note, Dear Sam, for cooking for you every day this week, no charge. For helping you with your homework on Monday, Tuesday and Thursday, no charge. For taking you to football training on Wednesday night, no charge. For washing and ironing your clothes, no charge. Love, Mum. Paul and Silas didn't charge the Thessalonians in the same way that a mother doesn't charge for her services because she loves her children. That's verse 7. And so Paul writes, verse 8, we love you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well because you've become so dear to us. See, Paul's dealing with the, um, with the Thessalonians wasn't a, a business transaction. It wasn't a, a teacher-student relationship. You know, I've got a message to pass on to you so that you uh, can learn some stuff. It certainly wasn't about Paul being on the make. Paul and Silas shared their lives with the Thessalonians. They mucked in the daily chores of life. They went out of their way to help them. More than that, they bared their souls, sharing life. Because, end of verse 8, the Thessalonians have become so dear to them. And verse, says, at verse 9, Paul says, Surely you remember that. Surely you remember that we didn't take one bean from you, but worked hard, really hard, night and day, so we could pay our way. If anything, it costs us to be about gospel ministry. <laughs> so from having been accused, wrongly accused, fake news, of being accused of being out to line their own pockets. Paul and Silas not only defend themselves, but show what real gospel ministry looks like. It's like a mother loving her children. Not passing on gospel information, but sharing life. Sacrificially doing stuff for others, even when it's costly to the person doing it. A messenger with a message of substance. Secondly, a messenger not proclaiming the message for profit. And thirdly, a messenger wanting the best for others in verses 10 to 12. Having addressed then the accusation that he was just out to line his own pocket, Paul addresses the other big issue that's on the table, that he was accused of being just in the popularity stakes, just wanting to get a following. And again, Paul can appeal to the Thessalonians' own experience. Indeed, in verse 10, he uses the language of the courtroom. He imagines himself and Silas in the dock, because in a way they are. And he writes, verse 10, we call on you and on God to be our character witnesses. Verse 10, you know we lived a holy, righteous, and blameless life while we were among you. You know this. Now, don't think that Paul is boasting here of being perfect. Now, whenever the Bible uses this blameless word in the context of leadership, it means being above reproach, of, of being with good standing in the community, of living the sort of life a leader should live. And Paul says, you witnessed how we live. We shared our lives with you. We were in and out of each other's lives all the time. We loved you. And did you see false motives? Did you ever see us turn on a charm offensive? Were we full of flattery, just buttering you up, saying what we thought you wanted to hear? No. What you saw, verse 10, was holy, righteous, and blameless living. 
And verse 11, you know how we dealt with each of you. I love that detail. It's very individual. Paul and Silas cared for each one of them. They didn't just kind of relate to them as a group, but as precious individuals. You know how we cared for each one of you. In verse 11, they dealt with them. How did they deal with them? Each one of them, as a father deals with his own children. We've seen the mother picture, now we see the father picture. And dads will know here that sometimes we talk to our whole family together, perhaps around a meal table, but there are other times when we talk to them individually because they have their own needs. And they need a different approach, different words of correction or encouragement. Children have different personalities. They respond to different approaches. That's how Paul and Silas were with the Thessalonians. They weren't trying to get a following. Quite the opposite. They cared for the Thessalonians individually. And their great concern for them is there in verse 12. So he says in verse 11, uh, we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of the gospel who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Worthy of, the, of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. See, Paul and Silas wanted the Thessalonian Christians to live consistent Christian lives, lives worthy of being called by God, lives consistent and worthy of being in God's kingdom. They weren't about gospel ministry for their own benefit, Paul and Silas weren't, but for God's glory. And so like a father, verse 12, they encouraged comfort and urged them to live the way they should. And that's not an easy task. Being a good dad is not easy. Urging your children on to do the right thing. Wanting them to live in a way that means they don't have any regrets. Trying to instruct them so they don't make whopping mistakes that follow them around for the rest of their lives. That is hard work if you're going to do it properly. And that, says Paul, is what he was about. He and Silas weren't out to get millions of people impersonally following their Twitter feed. They weren't trying to get thousands of friends on Facebook before launching a crowdsourcing scam. No, at their heart, what they were doing was for the good of the Thessalonian Christians and for the glory of God, end of of verse 12. Indeed, it is God who runs right through uh, these verses. Paul says again and again he wasn't trying to get the approval of people, but he was concerned about what God wanted of him. Verse 4, on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our heart. Verse 6, we're not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. See, Paul was concerned to do the right thing before God. Verse 12, he wanted the Thessalonians to live lives worthy of God. He was aware that the message he proclaimed was the gospel of God. See that in verse 8 and verse 10. And he did it all, verse 2, with the help of God. Now you see, as you put all that together, you see that Paul and Silas followed a pattern of ministry modelled by Jesus himself. Jesus suffered for the gospel. He paid the ultimate price. Jesus wasn't popular. He was hated, mocked, beaten and crucified. Jesus didn't live for financial gain, but lived for the sake of others. He served others. It cost him. Jesus wants us to live lives worthy of our being part of God's kingdom and glory. 
That's what Jesus was about, and that's what Paul and Silas were about. Here, then, is authentic gospel ministry. And so two things as we close. First, this chapter gives us a test for authentic gospel ministry, which will give us confidence that we're following the authentic gospel message. This is kind of scary as I stand up here and say this. It is right that you look at me and others on the staff team and ask yourselves, are they living this way? Are they prepared to suffer for the gospel? Are they just trying to get a following for themselves? Are they in it so they have a platform for the Christian life? Or or are they on the make? Or do they do this for others? Does gospel ministry cost them? You should ask of us, uh, do they have our best interests at heart? Do they serve us? Do they love us the way mums and dads love and encourage their children? And uh, for those of you who do have children, you will, who will be heading off for university and looking for a good church to go to, as you teach them how to find a good church, there's many things you'd need to say, this will be part of what you can say. This is a good way to assess a good church. Are the leaders like this in their ministry? So uh, first, uh, this chapter gives a test for authentic gospel ministry, and you should test those who are as it were, in leadership in this church in this way. Secondly, this is a model for genuine ministry for us to follow, and by us I mean all of us. Yes, it's a great chapter for me and the staff team, but it's also a template for many of you in the church family who are in gospel ministry leadership roles here, children and youth leaders, student leaders, small group leaders, and many other things as well. And you should look at this and take this as a pattern to follow. Be prepared to suffer for the gospel and for your group. Don't be in it for yourself. Have the glory of God and the growth of people as your greatest aim. Work hard so that others live lives that are worthy of God. Be concerned to get God's approval, not the approval of the people that you're serving. Love those in your group sacrificially like a mum and dad. See, that is genuine gospel ministry, motivated supremely by the Lord Jesus and the way he did ministry. And as we live like that, it brings credibility to the gospel message we proclaim and will encourage people to keep going with that gospel. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the Apostle Paul and Silas who followed the pattern of ministry that the Lord Jesus himself laid down. We thank you for all those who've gone before us, uh, those who have lived like this as they've shared the gospel with us. And we pray that for those of us in leadership that we would be uh, increasingly attempting to model our lives on this kind of pattern. And we pray as we do It would be an encouragement to those who follow the gospel that this indeed is the true gospel and so keep going in it. In Jesus' name, amen.